Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. This podcast does contain some description of events which some listeners may find distressing. Actum, actum, and welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, James Holland, and with Selma van der Peer. And I have to say, this is a particularly special edition of the podcast because Selma was uh, is from a Dutch Jewish family, was brought up in Holland. Then suddenly the war came. She lost most of her family, her father and mother uh, and her sister, in the Holocaust. She herself was a member of the Dutch resistance, was eventually caught um, and eventually transported to Ravensbrück, which she survived. It's the most extraordinary story of survival. And, and here she is, you know, all these years later, standing in, you know, sitting in front of me. I can see her now. Um, Selma, thank you very much for coming on and, and welcome. And um, gosh, what a story you have. And I thought we might just start at the beginning, if that's all right. Uh, you know, your childhood and, and growing up and, you know, who were your who were your parents? And you were you were you moved around a bit, didn't you? But but mainly Amsterdam. I was one of four children. Uh, I had two old elder brothers, one nine years and the other one eleven years older, and a little sister six years younger than me. So good old we gap. Were... Yeah, <laughs> like the queen. <laughs> yeah. And um, seems to happen with women sometimes. You know, we lived in well. The family comes from Alkmaar, which is a small town in the north of Holland. My father was brought up with his grandparents because in those days women got many babies and his mother he was the eldest one and um, when the second one arrived after a few months um, they he was taken by his grandparents for the time being but it turned out they kept him forever and he was brought up with his, he was brought up and he never forgave his mother for that really? so he had but although he had a very nice upbringing yes um he he didn't uh, like it very much right later on when he became older and um his grandparents were very religious very religious uh, orthodox jews not as you talk now about orthodox but in those days in holland most people who were jewish were orthodox jews means they were religious that's all and um his grand he was a very clever little boy and his grandparents wanted him to become a rabbi. And uh, he was very good at singing and performing when there were family festivals or neighborhood festivals. And um, so they sent him, after he'd been to a good secondary school uh, and a college, they sent him to a Jewish college. But he didn't believe in all the things they said. And he was quite resistant for it. In the end, they took him away from there, and he wanted to go on the on the stage, which he did. He became an uh, actor and singer and comedy writer. And he had mixed fortunes, didn't he? I mean, like many actors, you know, there were, it was feast and famine a little bit, wasn't it? In the beginning, he was a great success. Mm. But uh, he, 
we we had times that we were very poor, very up and down. Yes. I can remember my, my childhood being very much so. I mean, we were very poor one time and very well off the other times. <laughs> and so hardly anybody knew when we were poor because we were always well-dressed anyhow. They, 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 it sounds like they were very loving parents, though. And I, mem- uh, I, I remember you, you saying that your father was very was very liberal for the time. Very, very liberal man, yes. He believed in uh, in women being free. And he had, because in those days, in those very religious days, women were just for the household, you know. Yes. And the household there was very much like it because his grandparents had an, uh, a woman living in, and a housekeeper to look after them, who brought up actually my father most of the time. And um, so he was well, he was used to quite a good household, but he didn't agree with it at all. He was very much... In those days, and that was in the beginning of 1900, he uh, he was born in, 19, in 1889. So in the beginning, the social socialist movements came round and round, and people started to be opposing lots of things, you know. Mm. And he was a very free-thinking man. Yeah. He didn't believe in most of the very religious parts. Mm-hmm. And he said he wanted to go on the stage. And he was very... Um, when he got married to my mother, um, who they were friends. He, my mother's parents were friends with his grandparents playing cards. And they met in... My mother used to t- pour the tea. And my father was playing he was quite good at that and um that's how they met and and so um they married in 1911 and um my eldest brother was born that same year in december nine exactly nine months afterwards (laughs) and uh, yeah (laughs) and um my father thought that women should do what they liked not just only do the household. But most of the women, of course, were in the household in those days. Yes. And um, my mother didn't work, and neither did her sisters, or the, the ones who worked were her brothers. They were usually quite big families, of course. And you weren't, re- and you weren't really, you weren't particularly practising Jews, were you? I mean... Not at all. Not no, at all. because when my father was sent to the Jewish college to become a rabbi, he didn't agree with what the teachers told him and he was sent off a few times for being so opposing right. and he kept on not wanting the same thing he didn't believe in some of the stories which the religious people believe in and um so that's that's why and then when he went to amsterdam to that college that jewish college my mother went there too she wanted to meet him and that's where they became friends and then he didn't want in the end his grandparents re- realized that their money and time was wasted and so he was allowed to leave and he went on to the stage and he was quite well known in the beginning and um, did a lot of things and stood performed in a lot of theaters in Holland went up and down because in those days you had no agents no you just relied on uh, being in a cafe and people directors coming there to employ you Anyhow, I was born, so we lived in Amsterdam after having moved from from several places. And um, 
My father thought when I was born in 1922, it would be very good for the children to be at the seaside. So he told my mother to go to Zandvoort. Zandvoort is the seaside town like Brighton is to London. Yes. Seaside town to Amsterdam. And then when we moved back to Alkmaar, because my great-grandmother, my father's grandmother, was being ill, although she was in her 90s, like I'm now, hmm. and... Um, in the end died and we moved to Amsterdam because my father thought it was better for his work to be in the capital rather than in a small town. And when we were in Amsterdam, I was born. By that time, traveling through Europe and so on, doing quite well. But um, in 1940, of course, um, just when he was doing very well, um, managing as well, managing theaters and other and performances, um, my eldest brother came one morning, May 1940, and said, it's war, shook me. I was asleep, six o'clock, five o'clock in the morning, and said, wake up, wake up, it's war. And I said, oh, you all let me sleep. But I could hear the others already up as well. So I, and that was terrible. He had to be back. At, he was in the merchant navy by then, because the last year before the war, when England was already at war with Germany, Holland was still neutral, but everything was mobilized. And so my eldest brother was in the merchant navy, and my young brother was in the army. And um, my eldest brother had to be back at his, Louis had to be back on the ship at six o'clock. So my father decided to take him there, and we all went with him. Well, not my mother, but I did. And we never, and for a moment, thought of going with him on the ship. Never tried, even. Isn't One didn't amazing? know really what was going to happen. Can you remember some of what you were thinking? About? I mean, what, what, were you completely shocked that the war had begun, or, or was this something that... Had... Yes, we all were very shocked, because I'd heard all those stories about the First World War, you see, when mm. my parents were in charge of some of the um, refugees from Belgium, and so and. Dutch Holland was really neutral and um, had quite a comparatively good life compared with every other country yeah. who was in, at war. Holland wasn't at war. And so we all thought, everybody thought, well, most people thought, that Holland would be neutral again, you see. So it was a great uh, shock yeah. when the Germans invaded the Netherlands. And the, the Dutch fought for about four days. That's right. And then they had to capitulate. And then the, my younger brother was stationed in Zeeland, that's near the Belgian border and the sea, and um, in Middelburg. And um, he had, with his unit, he had to go to Belgium. And then when Belgium capitulated, he had to go to France and then to England. So both my brothers really turned up in England. Yeah. turned out to be in England late. But we didn't know that. And we were in a terrible state because we thought after four days in the occupation, the Germans might have caught my brothers, you see. So we were very right. nervous about Yeah, yeah. It. There was no post. So when did you hear that your, that your brothers had made it safely to England? Well, um, two years, almost two years, in the end of 1941 or the beginning of 42. Really? Not we till then? We had a letter from the Red Cross. Yes. From the Red Cross, well, there was no information at all, you see. No, and amazing. from the Red Cross, a letter from David, my younger brother, asking for something. 
and uh, saying that he was, not that he was in England, but that he was all right. Yeah. But my brother, my elder brother was even later. Yeah. Because I remember my father sending me to one, with with that note to one of his girlfriends, his best girlfriend, to tell tell her that Louis was alive. Amazing. So all that time you just have no Mm. idea what's happened to them at all. Well, then the Germans started to make laws against the the Jews. Yes. And um, that's that's when the trouble all started. Up till then, it was not too bad. I mean, I think you had to register in January 1941. But before then... Yeah. I mean, life sort of continued reasonably okay, didn't it? Reasonably, yeah. Yeah, the laws only came in by that time, yeah. The Germans were very, very clever, you see. They wanted the Dutch on their, on their side, and they tried not to be too difficult. But, of course, it was impossible because they made laws, and so it's the Dutch didn't like. And um, so everybody went in the resistance. Um, resisted really. but for a Jewish family like yours it it was a very much a sort of gradual process wasn't it of kind of reducing your rights reducing very your gradual. you know yeah. getting worse and worse and worse unbelievable actually you couldn't believe it you know that these things were going to happen yeah. um, you knew of course that something like that had happened in Germany but we weren't German you see and so um, that it was a terrible state, and especially when when the bad things started. All my friends were Christians, really Catholic and Protestant, and mentioned it, and it was different. You never talked about religion at all. We all knew we were uh, Catholic or Jewish or Protestant, right. but you never talked about it. You just knew that one went to church and the other one not. You see. And that was it. But when, of course, the rules came out, then it suddenly was a different question. You have to register in early 1941, but it's it's not until the following May of 1942 that you're having to wear those yellow stars of David on your on your chest. Yes, my father had to register us, of course. All the Jewish people had to be registered at, yep. the, at the Jewish council. Well, it must have just been so extraordinary to think that this was this is happening in you know you, you've lived this perfectly ordinary life sort of you know of a loving family minding your own business and then suddenly the germans are there and starting to really make life just so incredibly difficult for you it must have been it must have been very frightening and uncertain i i, I would imagine very frightening very disturbing yes. it disturbed our lives of course really our yeah. calm lives yeah. and um when that happened. And, you know, the Christians weren't allowed to come and visit you anymore, Jewish households. So that right. was the beginning of it all. Right. And um, my father said, oh, great will, which is the, the friend who she, she always did during the war, is the one I wrote the little note to yes. from the train, you know, in the beginning of the book. Yes. And... Um, she was very good, but most of the friends didn't dare, of course, because they would have been sent to concentration camps if they would. So yeah. they didn't. Or one or two did once. But um, that was another thing that was very bad. And you were not allowed to visit them either, Christian households. So that was oh, a great thing, it's, actually. It's it's so hard to sort of fathom today, you know, looking back on it and thinking about it. Yeah. I mean, it's... it's you know... The, 
I suppose you're just sort of sitting there waiting for something worse to happen, aren't you? I, I mean, was it was it a bit like that? I mean, did did you sort of wonder where it was going to end? Well, of course, my father knew and we had heard stories about what happened in Poland and Russia with the programs at the end of the 19th century. So we knew what could happen, you know, like that. But you didn't think it would happen in Holland. Somehow you thought because you were Dutch and in Holland, a thing like that didn't happen in Holland. And everybody thought it would happen. But so it's unbelievable now that you thought that, but that's what happened. Yes, of course. Well, I mean, but I remember there's that line in the uh, that you said your father said, and they said, "Well, what do you think will happen to us in 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 the east?" And he said, "I expect we'll be turned into mincemeat." And it's it's really chilling, isn't well, it? Well, my my uncle my uncle asked this this question. Yes, That's when right. do you think is going to happen? And he said, "Well, the germ." He said, "Yes." Tint, tint of mincemeat. Although the, he said also that the Germans were too clever. They were first not killed them, but first let them work because they needed. And there he was wrong there, of course, although some did work, but most of them were just gassed and killed. So your father was, you know, the roundups begin in, in I think, July 1942, which is sort of roughly the same time that they began in France as well. I was first in uh, June on my birthday. Right. I received the card, which was a call-up card. People were sent. That was when you were registered. And you were called up to work in work camps. That was the clever thing of the Germans, you see. They talked about work camps, not death camps. We didn't know. I was called up and my father said, no, 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 you're ill. So he gave me um, chocolates, which um, made me go to the toilet and um, called the doctor. And the doctors wrote a little note to give me free from going to the East East Europe to work. And uh, mm-hmm. that was a week. You couldn't get longer than a week. And after the week, I was called up again. And I went to a station in um, nurse uniform. A friend who had been a nurse had a uniform, nurse outfit. And I was told that if you were in an occupation that was necessary, you were you were free. And um, so after I stood there for an hour, I had my story ready that I was being a nurse and everything. But then the woman who was sitting there with a German officer standing behind her said, no, 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 and sickness um, can't become a social work. So you go tomorrow morning to the central station, which was the station where you had to uh, registered to go to East Europe. So I thought I better go to my, I was very disappointed. I had to go to the to a firm because I had started work then, finished school and started work with a firm, a paper firm in the South Walton, Jewish people. You only could work for a Jewish firm and they could only employ a Jewish person. And so I went to them, to Mr. and Mrs. De Jong, and they were in the garden talking to their neighbor and uh, I was going to. T- I was telling them what had happened that I couldn't come to work the next morning, but had to go to East East Europe to the work camp. And the man they were talking to next door was a German immigrant, and he had a fur factory. And he said, uh, "Why don't you come and work with me in my factory? You will be free because 
fur factories are free. So that's what I did. The next morning I went to work with him. But you had some luck, didn't you, Selma? I mean, to manage to avoid the first call-up on your your birthday and then to get the post in the fur factory. And um, then later on, when my father was called up in October 42, um, I used to send Mm. him parcels. And one day I had sent a parcel and I came from, from the post office and I came on the corner of the street to go to my firm to work and I had a funny feeling in my tummy and I turned around yes. and went to my hiding place where I was staying with my uncle and um, that same day in the afternoon we heard that all the fur factories had been collected by the um, by the German SS and sent to Auschwitz so I escaped again it's absolutely extraordinary I wonder what that was, just a, just a sick sense that something was afoot. I used to say I'm very, I was very lucky, but a friend of mine, she's German, born after the war in Germany, very nice friend of mine, um, she said to me when she heard the story and said, no, Selma, it isn't luck. You knew your instinct, you knew when to say yes or no, when to turn around or not. And maybe she's right. Yeah, amazing. And that's extraordinary. It's extraordinary why why some manage to make it through and others don't. It's just it's yeah. it's incredible. But 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 that that particular day is extraordinary, isn't it? That sixth sense that kicked in and told you not to go is is amazing. Call him my uncle, Uncle Jacques, but he was he was married to my mother's younger sister who was dead by then, and uh, he was also a colleague of my father. That's how he met, how they met. You see, uh, how he met my aunt. And uh, I was staying with him because he was married for the second time. The first, uh, my aunt died, and he was married to a Christian woman, Tantatini. And so he could stay, and I stayed with them. This was dangerous for them, really, to have me in hiding, you know. But it was very nice. And I looked, meanwhile, I looked after my cousin's children because his wife was in the hospital expecting, well, having uh, TB and expecting her third child. And I was looking after those two children, cooking for them and dressing them and things like that. And um, that was when I, for the first time, met the resistance movement, although I didn't know what resistance movement was in those days, you know, and it wasn't in existence, really. Um, But Dinky Yesser, the one who had lent me the... the nurse uniform, asked me to go to the hospital. And this was a Jewish hospital. They could only go to Jewish hospitals. And um, on the day the the baby was born, the third baby was born, and take the baby and give it to her. She was in the corridor somewhere. And not not let the nurse take the baby to go back to the baby room. So that's what I did. I went to the hospital and took the baby from the mother and uh, to, to put him back in the room with babies, but gave him to Dinja and he survived the war. He was brought, he was taken to a Christian family, Catholic family in the south of Holland, in Limburg. And his brother and sister, the two I looked after, also were saved. All three children were saved. And one of them is still alive, actually. So that was, that was the best. Yeah, that was a story too, because that school, that little nursery school opposite um, the theater, where all the Jews were 
kept in those days before being sent to Germany. The little theater had all these little children and hundreds of these children have been saved in suitcases and rucksacks to be taken to families, really hundreds. And so that is very marvelous from all the people, all the workers who did that. It's really amazing. And the story in itself... So how did you start to meet people who were in the resistance? Yeah, I was in hiding, therefore, and um, it, it went wrong in Amsterdam. Something went wrong with the people who had the, the addresses. And so uh, Wim Storm, a doctor, took me to Leiden, and in Leiden, staying then with a girl called Antje Holthaus, who was head of the genealogical department in the Leiden hospital. Leiden is like Oxford here, the hospital is like. And um, she and her friend, who was the head of the laboratory in the Leiden hospital, they had that flat, or part of the house really. And I was staying with them. In those days already, the doctors of the Leiden Hospital had formed a group which um, was taking Jewish families into hiding. They had already found families and so so they were already in existence, but I didn't know that. In the evening, these doctors often came to visit us and have a meal with us. And so I started to get to know them. And in the after a while, they in the beginning they didn't, but after a while they talked about what was happening during the day, how they brought this person there and how, how difficult that one had been and so on and so on. And uh, I heard those stories. And then by that time, in 1942, the end of 1942, the laws already had changed where Dutch boys and men had to go to work camps as well. In, in case they, they, the boys who had finished um, secondary school and wanted to go to university had to sign a loyalty letter, which if they didn't want to, they were sent to Germany to work camp, which they didn't want to, and then they went into hiding. So it was and the same as men. If they were out of a job, they had to go to Germany to work, and if they didn't want to, they went into hiding. So by that time, there were not only Jewish people in hiding, but also many Christians. So a lot of foot tickets and ID cards, because they all had to have different ID cards uh, in case they were stopped. A lot was needed for that. And when these doctors told one evening how difficult it was because all the boys were um, either arrested already or could or not, or were in hiding themselves, I said, can I help? And they said, oh, yes, please. And that's how it started. I first filled in just um, envelopes, envelopes with um, illegal paper because Newspapers weren't in existence anymore, were not allowed, except one. But we had a lot of illegal papers with all the news from England, which was taken on the radio and so, and then printed, but illegally, of course. And so I was distributing those to start off with. But after a while, I was asked to do other things, to be career work, actually. But, but Sam, before we go to that, where, so where are your mother and sister at this point? Dave and my father went to the work camp in the north of Holland. Yes, um, yes. back in October family, previous, yeah, 42. When the men went there, they were the same evening, instead of the work camp, they were straight away transferred to the concentration camp in the north of Holland, Westerbork, which was a Durchgangslager to go to Auschwitz. 
my father was still there. That same evening, I heard all the neighbors and other people screaming, and the Germans were collecting, the Germans and the Dutch police were collecting the wives and children of these men, because it wasn't only my father, it was all the other men too, um, who had been arrested. And um, all these women and children were thrown into lorries. And I said to my mother, we weren't collected, this was lucky um, that evening, but I said to my mother the next morning, we'll have to do something because they may come for us tonight or tomorrow. And that's how I've, I went to a friend and she gave me an address and it turned out to be our insurance man. <laughs> and uh, he gave me an address to go into hiding. First of all, he gave me an address and he said, tomorrow there'll be a woman coming for your mother and sister. And they took them to a hiding place in Eindhoven. And they stayed there for a year until they were betrayed in 94, July 1943. And were taken to Westerberg and then to Auschwitz. Well, they were to Sobibor, weren't they? I went, and I went into hiding as well there. Not there, but yeah. somewhere else. But, but separate from them. But you did have what you did get to see them one more time didn't you yes several times because when i was in yes because when i was in uh, in hiding in leiden and i was starting to do curious work then the person on who used to bring them the money and the food cards and everything uh, said well you can do it now and so they gave me the address and i went every month uh, oh, to right, see okay. my mother and stayed there and shared the bed with my mother so Selma, tell me tell me about this first courier job that you had to do uh, you mean the one that they stopped when they stopped me in the at the exit yes. in leiden yes. well i had Anne langer who was another uh, resistance worker and she um came to central station in amsterdam and i had to go there too and she placed a big suitcase in the luggage rack opposite me and said keep an eye on that and so as it was quite late and we had curfew at eight o'clock um, I didn't dare to go. In the suitcase were illegal papers for several towns in the south of Holland. And I didn't dare to go there. So she said, you better stay the night in Leiden in your own bed and go tomorrow morning. So when I got to Leiden, which was quite near Amsterdam, I went out of the train and I saw that there was a control, a checkup at the exit. I didn't know what to do. There was no other exit. And no other way of getting out. And the train had already gone. And so I went to the exit with my very big, heavy suitcase. And there was an, uh, a conductor stay, staying there and a uh, German SS man. And uh, he said, uh, what's in that suitcase? And I said, underwear. Because I didn't know. Really. I knew there was paper, but I didn't know exactly what was it. And so um, he said, open. So I fiddled with the locks because I didn't know the locks. I didn't know the suitcase, really. And so uh, the locks were very difficult to open. Finally, I opened the locks and opened the suitcase. And I thought, I thought I'm finished, you know. But uh, he said, go. God, it must have been absolutely terrifying, wasn't it? I was trembling. <laughs> Trembling outside, outside the station. I was really trembling. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So much that my friends uh, in the flat said to me, what happened to you? You look terrible. So that's when I told them. <laughs> I bet you that could was my first scarcely experience. believe you'd got away with it. Yeah, but it wasn't your only close shave, was it? And, and 
and, and then you have to go to Paris. Them. And then there was the time on the train, wasn't there, where the suitcase goes missing? The one on the train, yes. That was also the um, same, same suitcase, suitcase with uh, five big parcels with um, newspa illegal newspapers wrapped up. At this time, I was in the morning, so I went all the way to The Hague and Rotterdam and got there and wanted to go to the toilet. And I did go, and when I came back, and had again placed the suitcase in the luggage rack. And when I came back to my what I thought was my carriage, there was no suitcase. And I thought, what happened to it? And it wasn't there. But the woman sitting opposite me, a Dutch woman, said, have you lost your suitcase? So I knew I was in the right carriage because my seat was opposite her. And I said, no, no, no. And But when we stopped at the next station, she opened the window and shouted outside, uh, this girl has, got, has lost a suitcase. It's stolen. And so there was a German officer out. German officer, I could have killed her. There was a German officer outside and he said, Rouse, out. So I couldn't do anything but go out. And um, the train had stopped. And I was on the platform and he said, what's in the suitcase? And I said, underwear. And he asked a few questions and so. And then luckily for me, he was called away and the train started running and the conductor also started to run to the train to show that the train could go. So I ran to the riding train, jumped on and went off. And when we came to Dordrecht, which is a bit more south, and I had to change there, going to the south of Holland, although I didn't need any more. I was going outside of the train and the conductor said to me, are you the girl who lost the suitcase? And I said, yes. And he said, what was in it? I said, underwear. Oh, I think I found it, he said. So he came with a very small suitcase, which wasn't mine at all. And uh, he opened it up and thank God there was underwear in. And so I went out of the train with somebody else's little suitcase. I, my suitcase was oh, stolen. That's amazing. My suitcase was stolen by somebody. So you never got to the bottom of what happened to it? Well, yes, we did. Wow. After the war, yeah, we were told the suitcase, the suitcase was it's in, in one of the books up to somebody. The suitcase is, was found in the water and in the river. And um, with all the papers in it, because when the, we laughed, actually, Anne and I, because she came in there, I sent a telegram to her. In those days, she still had telegrams. And um, we laughed because she said those the men who, or women who stole the suitcase must have had the shock of their life when they opened the suitcase and found all these legal papers in it. And, um, yeah. we, we, Surely the lady who'd been sat opposite you must have seen it being taken. Because she said to you, you know, what, what well, happened to your suitcase? Yes, Have you yes, lost your suitcase? She probably thought it was that person's uh, suitcase. I don't know. Amazing. <laughs> but you had to go. You had to go to Paris as well, didn't you? Yes, I didn't want to actually. I thought it was very I'm dangerous. Not surprised. And I, didn't like, I didn't like the idea at all. But they said the two boys are in prison and we need the papers, we need the stamps, because they needed German. Later on, of course, this was early, but later on, the stamps as well and themselves, I mean, the resistance. In those days, they didn't have anything like that yet. So, um, and, you had a, and you had a new identity as well, didn't you, by this time? Oh, yes, I had that already some time when I moved to Utrecht. Yes, that was yes. a little baby who died when she was uh, a year old. And um, she was called Margarethe van der Kuyt. And the resistance movement asked me, would I be the guinea pig 
to start a real identity card. And they got it through the, from the people. By that time, we had people working with us, assisting us, people who were working in the archives and in the council offices. And uh, so that man who was working in that office got me the ID card of the baby born or died, but um, Margarete van de Kuyt. So from that time onwards, which was 1943, I was Marga van de Kuyt, and which has saved incredible. me, actually. Uh, uh, and, and Selma, when you're on these long trips, like the, like, like the one to Paris, for example. But you must just be on edge the whole time, aren't you? Are you just, are you just... They checked in the train, of course. They're always checking. The, they were always checking the train. But my papers were good enough for that. Obviously. I'm just trying to picture myself being you in, in, in that time. And you've got false ID. You are actually Jewish. You're going to Paris in a different country, also occupied by the Nazis. And suddenly some guards are coming along the train. I mean, your heart must be pounding thousand to the minute, isn't it? It was. My tummy started aching always. <laughs> Don't forget, I was doing it many days. The checkups were all the time there. So I was getting used to it. It was, it was almost like a daily job, going to the office, you know, and doing your job. I did have uh, in the train itself, when there was a checkup, I was a bit scared. But I knew after a little while that my paper, my ID card, was very good, actually. Turned out to be very good also when I was arrested, when my boss was arrested and yes. I with him. And I was, and was sent to Amsterdam to the headquarters there. I, that's when I thought they have a machine and can find out that I'm not really my guy. Because you were you were interrogated by the head of the SD there, weren't you? Yeah, Lagos. Yeah. So to, just to, just to, sorry, just go go back a moment. So how did your arrest? How did that come about? I mean, you just happened to be in in the house at the wrong time, didn't in you? In Bob's room, yeah, at the wrong time. He was arrested in the train, and somebody who somebody else, Franz Scherzer, had another resistance worker, had uh, promised to make me some bookshelves because I had my suitcase with all these illegal papers under my bed, which was very dangerous. And so he said, I'll make you some bookshelves with um, secret hiding places. And that, that day, just that day, after month and month, uh, Jan, another colleague uh, resistance worker, came with the, suitcase, with the shelves and said, I've got yourselves. And so we were, he was just showing them to me how it worked, how it opened and so and where. When the front door went, and I said, oh, there is the boss. There was Bob Yasser, Peter, was the name by them, between two Grüne Polizei. We called them Grüne Polizei because they were in green uniforms, German police. And they came, they came upstairs. I tried to run up to the second floor because we were on the first floor. And, um, but they got me back and they asked who I was and so on. I said, I was just a girlfriend. And they said so too. We had arranged that, that if anything happened, because it could always happen, of course, I would just be the girlfriend. So that's what we said. And I said so too. And you, and you stuck to that story throughout your interrogation, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah. Until, until everything wasn't possible anymore. I kept on sticking to it, even in, in, um, in prison. Whether they believed it or not. <laughs> well, it seems that they must have done. Yeah. 
I was taken to the um, prison, and there was there was a guard lady, an old lady guard, and she said to me, "Have you got a diary?" And I said, "Yes." She said, "Tear it up and put it through the toilet." And I said, "There's nothing. There's nothing in it." She said, "They always find something. Do as I tell you." And I did. I went to the toilet and tore it up and flushed it. <laughs> And she was right, of course, they do. They, they could learn things out of people, even if there was nothing to be got. And um, so that was it. And then the next day I was taken to, well, it was terrible there because there was another girl whose boyfriend at that moment was shot while I was there. And she was in a terrible state because she was also condemned to death, but they let her live actually as a uh, Nacht und Nebel prisoner which means that nobody knew where she was. Yes, these were the ones, so, so this was a decree, wasn't it, from, from Hitler that, that people should just disappear with no grave, yeah. nothing, no yeah. no one ever find yeah. anything about them ever again. And most of them horrible. did, most of them disappeared, yeah. But I saw her again in Sweden, so she survived, thank goodness. Um, next morning I was taken between, in, the, in the, that first day prison, um, in between two Grüne Polizei again, um, very fat ones, I could hardly sit, <laughs> um, to Amsterdam. And there was infamous, was the Euterpestraat. And in the Euterpestraat was, um, Strate Street, was a school, a high school, and the Germans had taken, the, the headquarters of the German SS had taken that over, and it was well known for torture and, and interrogation. And I was taken there. And when I got out of the car with the Germans, um, there was a man standing on top. There, were high, there was a high um, staircase going to the front. And there was a man standing on top of that. He said, what is that? My guard said, oh, uh, the girl has nothing to do with it. And, and I thought, oh, lovely. You know, my story is all right. But then he said, and it was Lagos, the head of the... German police in in Nederland, in Holland, and he said, nicht. I don't believe it. And my heart sank in my shoes then. I thought, oh my God. I didn't know it was Lagos yet, but I later on heard. But I was taken to the big room, this entrance, and uh, put in a big chair, comfortable chair, and my shoulder back was taken from my shoulder, and they went off. It was then that I thought maybe they have machines here where they can find out that I'm not Marge van der Kuyt, you know. That's when I thought about it. I was very relieved the other times, but then that's when I was scared. But I didn't show it, I just smiled, and there were boys, men sitting on that side, behind machine uh, types, typewriters, and on that side were a load of women type secretaries, and I just smiled from one to the other, insisted on smiling, <laughs> and um, more than I do now. Um, and then after about half an hour, but I was scared. Oh, I was very scared, very scared. Then after half an hour, about half an hour, they came back with my handbag, and they gave it back to me. And so I thought, oh, well, it must be all right. The papers must have been all right. And uh, thank thank the resistance movement for doing it. 
and um, then I was taken to I was taken to the big prison and put in a cell there with several other women, and uh, every day was was an uh, interrogation. This was not very nice, but I kept on saying I don't know anything. I'm just a girlfriend. Until one day, the German. Oh, first of all, the German said, "Do you speak? Do you speak German?" I said, "No, I did speak German because in Holland you learn the three languages: German, French, and English." Um, but I said no. So he called in a Dutch policeman, and he had to translate it every time. One day, he offered me a cigarette. And I saw that they had been in my suitcase because my father always used to, in the, during the war, always used to put the dates on the food, which was that I do that now as well. I mean, most of us do that now in the freezer. And well, then I had done it because I had two ration cards, one to give to my um, hostess because you had to do that. You, you you couldn't go to cafes or anything like that. And one I took with me if I stayed with a farmer or people who I had to visit. And um, But that mean, meant that I also had two lots of cigarette cards, cigarette tickets. And uh, so I had a lot of cigarettes and I smoked like mad. And um, so he came and offered me a cigarette, and I saw it was a packet with my date on it. I knew that being in the thing. And he said, you better tell us the truth now, because uh, the Führer doesn't kill women. Well, I knew better. I mean, I knew several people who had been shot. But um, I just said, I'm, I'm the girlfriend. Well, what is all that in your suitcase? Well, I'm keeping that for my friends. They asked me to keep it for them. And um, so I kept on saying that all the time. We had arranged that, you see. And so I did. But I was um, condemned for duration of the war, imprisonment for the duration of the war. We're having to take a short break now, but we'll be back after this. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, US Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics US, brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. 
In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to our conversation with Selma van der Peer. And you eventually end up in Ravensbrück, don't I was you? I was taken to the Dutch concentration camp first, and then uh, when the invasion came, the, the English and American invasion in June, because don't forget, this was already um, late in the autumn, and um, in August, I was taken there and uh, was put in an camp, a very small camp, where um, we were put to make gas masks, a small gas mask factory. And um, while I was there, I was sleeping in just one one barrack. Not, we, we didn't have tears, we were just one barrack. And there was one barrack for um, toilets with no division, just five toilets with her, and one barrack for the kitchen. So it was very, it was very, very small and intimate. And one, we worked there from 12, 12 hours, from six to six, six in the morning till six in the evening, or six in the evening till six in the morning for night shift. And while I was there, I had night shift one day, and I was queuing up with other people for the toilets, which had, as I say, no division, no curtains, nothing in between, but they were real toilets. And, um, the woman who was in front of me came from the toilet and I saw her pulling the water closet, the chain and the water closet came down and fell on my hands and half my thumb broke off, almost at least the hang off. And you can still see the, the bite. And it took years and years and years for it to heal. And I still have no power, much power in it. You can just do about this. That was my uh, experience. Another another prisoner who had been a nurse, she found a stick and uh, a piece of cloth which she tore up and she bound it all together. And that's why it healed, because there were no doctors, and not there at least. And uh, so I worked there and on the running band, what's it called? The, and uh, I was sitting at the conveyor belt and the girl opposite me said... Uh, don't screw the screws too fast because we want to uh, we want them to get loose when they get to um, to Germany to be used. They were gas masks, so okay. that's what I did. We all did. We tried to do these things, and then one night we all sabotaged in that way. It's the only thing we could do. One day um, night, I was uh, queuing for night shift, and uh, we were going in the in the factory, when the girl in front of me said, uh, we're going to try and escape tonight. Are you coming with us? So I thought of it. I said, no, I don't think so. I thought I was safer inside than outside in case they opened my papers again. So, but she said, can you close the window because we're going through the toilet window. And that's what they did, three of them. They went through the toilet window and um, and I, clo I was asked to close the window. Luckily, I didn't go with them because um, 
when they were crossing out, they were in the blue overalls, which we were all in. And um, when they were walking in the, in the meadow outside, there was a German looking for a farmer to help them. There was a German soldier lying there with a Dutch girl, and he recognized them and took them back to Goodness. the camp. So it was very good that I didn't. Salma, one thing I wanted to ask you was was about what happened to Bob Yesser. Bob, um, Peter, as he was then, and Jan were, of course, arrested. And when we were taken to Ravensbrück, Jan was taken to um, an, a men's camp. And um, But Bob, because what had happened is they had told Bob they had found his diary and Bob, very precise man, had made notes in the diary. And one of them was a meeting in the south of Holland. And he, they, the Germans said if he didn't tell them where it was and what day, then they would show, shoot Jan and me. And I didn't know that for years until I saw it in the papers in the archives. And um, so he had to, he also was, there was also a woman with two little children and the Germans kept the children, one of the children's arms behind the back and said, if he didn't tell the place, then they would break the child's arm. So the mother, the mother cried and cried and went on to him and said, please, please tell them. And so he told. It's so unspeakably cruel, isn't it? Yeah. And so, at the end of the war, because the, the, the Allies um, invaded France first, and then they came in the 4th of September on the border of Holland and Belgium, and then um, Holland was liberated quite a while afterwards, the next year. Um, the north of Holland was first not the first, the six months of the winter, terrible winter for the Dutch, um, 44, 45. And, um, but when they were liberated, two boys came, uh, young boys, and wanted to shoot Bob because they said he was, he had betrayed them. And they, they shot by accident Dintje, his wife, and she was in a wheelchair all her life. A terrible story. It's terrible, isn't it? But you obviously survived Ravensbrook. I stayed I stayed friends with Bob because I knew how difficult it had been. You can't judge, you see, because there was nothing he could do. Yeah, I wanted to survive. I didn't want to give the Germans the satisfaction of killing me, of having me dead. <laughs> I wanted to survive. I mm. said to myself, do everything. But I've had times that I almost died, though. There was one evening when I was at Siemens, I worked for Siemens then, and um, who had a factory near the camp, and had people working for them. And um, I was in a terrible state, almost dead, died, when my boss said, the chef of the hall said, go and lie down in the office. And there was a little office at the end of the hall, the hall was with 300 people, something like that, 300 women, and, and to lie down. And just that evening, that night, was the night, that night, 
the house of, of Serene, the head of Serene came. She'd never been before and she never came afterwards. Just that evening and I was lying down. So when they started counting, there was one missing all the time. They counted and counted and counted. And, never, and in the end, the boss master told them that I was lying there. So, so then, and I thought I'd be terribly punished because I knew, I thought that's the end of me. But no, I think he must have said that he told me to go and lie down there. But she was, I don't know if you saw the story a few weeks ago, well, a month or two ago, um, Johanna somebody, she was in the, in the newspapers because she had been condemned to death in um, Nuremberg, but um, the Polish, Polish, Polish prisoners in Ravensbrück written to the judges and said that she had helped them. But um, she was a horrible woman. But I was very lucky that night that, you know, she didn't do anything. Just going to tell you how one of the German soldiers hit me with his belt when I couldn't get up from the toilet. And um, it was quite in the beginning. I had terrible trouble with my tummy. Still is very sensitive. And um, there was roll call all the time. And there was roll call then in the morning. And I couldn't get up from the loo. And so he took his belt off, his leather belt with iron on it, and started hitting me until I was unconscious. And then two of the other women had to hold me up for the counting, and they took me to the hospital. And I was for several days in the hospital. They put me in the bottom, in, in the, at the head end of the bed, and there were two German women lying at the foot end. I was still unconscious. The next morning, they threw me out of the bed, and therefore I woke up. And they said, dirty Dutch woman hasn't washed. So I crawled on my knees to the corridor where the was basin and started washing me myself. And the Afserin who was standing there and heard the Polish woman talking to me said, um, I thought that Dutch woman would be dead this morning, so I must have been in a terrible state. And she took me back to the bed. So there we go. Wow. I mean, you, you had some incredible... Yeah, there are more stories, but they're so, I mean, you know, I could go on talking. <laughs> well, don't let me stop you. I mean, it's... it's. Well, I was there in the hospital. The boss had, well, I had found, well, in the beginning when we arrived, Will and I started, we had to do, all of us, all the Dutch women, had to do very heavy work, except the ones that were sent to Siemens. Those were the ones who, in Eindhoven, had worked for Philips. But we hid under a mattress so that we didn't need to do very heavy work, Bill and I, Bill was Bill and I. And, um, but I thought it was very dangerous, really, even although we were Dutch and thought we could do everything. Um, next morning, one of the women who came back from Siemens, when we told what we did, she said to me, why don't you join the Siemens group? And I said, well, I've never worked for Philips. I don't know how to do these, how to work these machines. Oh, it doesn't matter. She said, somebody will tell you. I said, yes, but also going out of the camp. I mean, you know, they don't have my number and everything. Oh, that's not necessary. All they do is you, you line up in fives and all they do is counting the rows of fives. So in the end, she talked me into it 
And the next morning at half past five, I joined the group and she was quite right. All they did was counting the rows of five. So I arrived at Siemens, it was half an hour walk in those days before they made the Siemens camp. And um, I was put to the shelves of the, at, near the wall with little machines on it, little, I think, we think um, aeroplanes machines, little. So I was put to work well, to, to soldier very fine wires. Well, I couldn't do that. I was very nervous, very nervous. I couldn't. So every time the phone went, I jumped up and answered it because I knew how to do that. And uh, while I was in the hospital later on, just talking about, a girl came and she said, Siemens has made a new barrack, a new hall, and uh, her safe safe is the chef there, and he wants you to come and become his secretary. So when I went and left the hospital as soon as I could, (laughs) so I had quite a good, he was sitting on that side of the, his table, and I was sitting on the other side. So I had quite uh, quite a good, comparatively easy time. There. And did that and that did that see you through to liberation? Yeah, I did. Yes, yes, yes. I had times that I was almost dying, and my Czech friend came with a slice of bread with onion, cut onions on it, which put me back again on my feet. I had times that I was almost dying, but uh, I got through it, yeah, in the end. Extraordinary story. It really is. There are several stories within it, of course, yes. I, for instance, uh, once uh, it was getting winter and I was getting very cold. And my Czech friend, who always was very well dressed, she had a nice coat on and nice shoes and so. And the Czechs were very influential because they'd been there from the beginning, you know, and they helped each other very much, like the Russians did, actually. And uh, but she was sitting next to me at the table and in Siemens, and she didn't need to do night shift. I don't know why not, but she never did. But when I was not feeling well, she came with this slice of bread with onions. It's funny, but it's like a piece of cake now, you know. And um, yes, it was just a slice of their awful bread and cut onions on it, little pieces of onions. And that was like a piece of cake saved my life. But one day she said to me, now you go to the Kleidungskammer, which was the the hallway, the the barrack, where all the clothes were kept, all our bags from the camp and all the people, all the Jewish people who had been sent to Auschwitz, all their clothes was there as well, in bags. And she said, tell the woman there that I sent you. She's, I can't remember the name now. It's a Czech woman, friend of mine. And um, she knows that you're coming. So I hardly dared go, but I did in the end because I thought I need some warm clothes. We only had those very thin, gray, striped prison dresses. And I went, and yes, she, she did know. That I said, I come from Wally. And she said, yes, I know. And she gave me a lovely quilted black coat and a, and a, and a cap with it and uh, some shoes, proper shoes. And I really wore those the whole time till the end of the imprisonment. And it saved me, really. I would have had pneumonia otherwise. So you, you were helped in those things. You know, you had your friends 
and they had their influence, some of them, especially the ones who were there in the beginning. I mean, from the very beginning, 1942 or something. And Selma, tell me about liberation. I mean, what, what was... What in was 1945, first of all, in the beginning of 1945, we were asked to stand outside for roll call at normal, and uh, women over 50, their, their names and their numbers were called out, and they were called out. And David and their daughters, they, some of them had daughters there, and their daughters asked what was happening, and we were told that they were they're going to an other camp and they're getting good food and don't need to work anymore. And we believed it at that moment, of course, but we were told later on, these daughters were told later on that they were killed and went through the pipe. Yeah. And so in 1945, we were called outside. And we thought the same thing was happening to us because we knew that every day people, women were killed still, they were gassed and killed, because by that time, Auschwitz didn't exist anymore, and it, it had been liberated by the Russians in the beginning of 45, and all the guards came to Ravensbrück, and also the gas chamber and, and the ovens. And um, so we knew that that was happening. In fact, the day we were liberated, on the 23rd of April, 1945, they still, the Germans, still killed 13 women. We were called outside and we thought we were going to be killed as well, you see. And then um, we had to walk past that youth camp, Uckermark, where the old people were sent to before they were gassed. And we thought, oh, that's where we go. But luckily we passed it and we went to the main camp. But then we thought we'd go in the main camp and go to the gas chambers there. And we thought this all the time. But we stayed in, an, in a barrack for nine days, in a hall, for nine days. And every day when we had to go outside for roll call, we thought that's the end, you know. And that was a terrible feeling. It's awful. I mean, how do you prepare yourself for that? You can't. There's nothing you can do. Even the day itself, on the 23rd of April, we were told to walk and go outside the gate. And we thought again, there we go, you see. After all that time having done it, now we, we I remember did saying or I saying something like that. After all this awful time that we will be killed now, after all. But um, it wasn't. Because what happened was we stood there and in the morning we had to stand there outside the gate, the main gate. And nobody tells you anything, you see, in those camps. No, nothing, to, never. And don't forget, also, we had been told so often that we would be liberated, and it never happened, that we didn't believe it. And we stood there and stood there and stood there, and nothing happened. And, uh, and of course, the German guard stands on your side, so there's nothing you can do. And um, then suddenly a little car, a little sports car arrived, and we saw a young man jumping out of it, and he introduced himself as a Swedish chap um, and a friend of Count Volker Bernadotte, who was head of the Swedish Red Cross and International Red Cross. And um, he told us that we would be freed by buses. Buses would come and free us and take us to Sweden. But no buses came. So we didn't believe that either. 
because no buses came, no buses came. And he said when it became dark in the evening, it was summer after all, spring, um, you better go back to your beds because you want to sleep. And we said, oh, never do we go back into the camp again. We had told him all the stories, but you could see in the man's face that he didn't believe it, you know. It was, it was unbelievable, of course. The whole story was unbelievable. It still is. So we said, no, 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 we used, but you can't stand the whole, or sit on the floor. And we said, well, I mean, I didn't, but the other said, I, I stand the whole night if I work on my machine, because they had standing in big machines as well, they worked at, you see. And um, as I said, he didn't believe it, but we didn't go back, except the very ill ones, they went back to the camp's hospital. And then the next morning, three trucks arrived, military trucks, no buses yet, military trucks. And we were told the young ones to jump in that and you'd be taken to um, Denmark, via Denmark to Sweden. So we jumped in, well, I wanted to sit next to the driver because the, those trucks had um, cloth coverage, you know, instead of, instead of vans. So I wanted to sit next to the driver, but somebody else wanted to sit there, and we fought for the seat, the woman and I. In the end, the driver said, um, we're going to stop in an hour's time, and you can sit here then to me. So I let her sit there, and I went into the van before her. And we stopped after an hour, half an hour, an hour, I can't remember. And uh, in the woods, we sat in the woods drinking, because they had brought uh, orange juice and tea and um, sandwiches and chocolate, sat there having it, and suddenly some shooting started. And the driver said, quick, 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 back into the van, you can't stay here, we don't want a shooting. And uh, so we ran back, and I wanted to sit next to him. <laughs> but she, she was quicker, and she went, I said, but we arranged it, but she didn't want to. So my friend did, did said, Come, come, with us. come with me, Marga, let her go. So I had to go in the back of the previous, the one, the, the van in front. This woman was, because they, they were the allies shooting, they thought it was German prisoners and um, military chap fleeing, because that's what they did. They used the um, Red Cross vans and buses to flee themselves. But uh, it wasn't, of course, it was us. And 13 were killed, including the woman who didn't want me to have her seat. So if I would have been on that seat, I would have been killed too. So then we went off to Denmark and got very heavy food, uh, very, very greasy food, beautiful food, but our stomachs couldn't carry it. So we were all very, very ill. The, the Danish, very nice Danish women were told not to makes us heavy food anymore for the rest, for the others. And then we went off over to Sweden, to Malmö by ferry. And um, when we arrived in Malmö, we, we had a lot of uh, high people 
giving talks, and all we wanted was to lie down and sleep. Uh, very, sure. very nice. When did you first feel? When did you start to feel free and, and and start to relax a bit? Was it when you got to Denmark, or was it when you got to Sweden? No, I started to feel that we were that we were really freed when I when the the Swede standing outside the camp was offering me a cigarette, and my auxiliary, my right. guard, girl guard was looking out of the window and said, Nicht rauchen, Marga. Don't smoke, Marga. It was, and then he said, the sweet said, you smoke, she has nothing to tell you anymore. It was that moment that I felt we were, it was true, we were free. You thought I've made it? Yeah. We arrived in Malmö in the big um, museum where they had put mattresses for us to lie on in one of the big halls. The big the huge statues were all covered up and uh, and the, the floor was full of mattresses. But I couldn't lie down. I, I felt too restless. Um, the others went to sleep and talk together, but I couldn't. And um, then at a certain moment, there was the... Um, we were given a shower and a bath and scrubbed clean because we were full of lice. And it was a wonderful feeling to be scrubbed like that. And then we were taken to another room where there were racks of clothes. We could choose two dresses and a coat and a hat and shoes given to suitcases. And so this was very nice. I realized then that we were free, definitely. And um, then there was a certain moment when there came a Dutch attaché and he went to sit behind the table and we had to queue up and give our names. So I went to the back of the queue and after a long thought, gave my name as Margarete van der Kuyt. And then I went also to the room where all the mattresses were and asked the doctor, could I help? And he said, yes, if you could help with some of the translations if necessary. But then I thought, while doing that, I thought I really ought to go back to the Dutchman and tell him whom I am. So luckily he was still there and I went back and I said, where does the list, does the list with the names go to Holland? And he said, no, it doesn't. And he said, it goes to England. I said, but he said, Holland is still occupied. I said, but England is still at war with Germany. So, yes, he said, but it goes into the diplomatic post and that can go without a German looking at it. So we then moved to, so I went back to um, to the Dutch table, to the men, the Dutch attaché, and I, I asked these questions and he answered them. And he said, why? Why are you so interested? I said, well, very hesitatingly, I didn't dare say it actually. I didn't dare give my real name, but I said in the end, well, my name is really not Margarete van der Kuyt, but Selma Velleman. My name is Selma. So he looked up, didn't say a word, took his pen out of his pocket, scratched out Margarete van der Kuyt and put in Selma Velleman. Well, luckily for me, he did, because a few weeks after that, we were in Sweden, in Skatos, which was a little camp. We were in turn still, because Holland was still occupied by Germany. And we had dinners in the evening. They were marvelous, Swedish. They were so good. We had lovely food and lovely clothes and everything. And saunas, which none of us had ever seen or experienced. And um, 
We had two dinners in the evening, one at six and one at seven. Beautiful food. And um, I had booked seven o'clock that evening. And there was a big hall where we had our dinners. And there was a podium there because before we were there, it had been used for soldiers. And there was a podium there for when they had the theaters. And there was a man standing on that podium and he said, is there a Selma Velleman here? And nobody had answered the first time at six o'clock when he asked that. But that this time I stood up, I said, yes, that's me. So everybody looked terribly surprised. He said, I've got a telegram for you. So I opened the telegram and it was from my brother David, who was head of the administration in London. That's that's uh, administration in London. And he wrote and yeah. said, so pleased he had seen my list on the my name on the list. And um, well, not the first oh, one. Must have been a wonderful feeling for him. Must have been, yes, as well. So pleased you are alive. What about mum, dad and Clara? Question mark. And when did you find out what happened to them? Um, my mother and sister, I did quite quick in Holland because there were lists of people who were killed. But my father, they didn't find out. They, I got Red Cross information. I was already in England in the beginning of 1946. Took six months. I don't know why, but it did. He'd actually been killed at Auschwitz, hadn't he, almost the day after he arrived? Taken on the transport from uh, uh, Westerberg to Auschwitz on the 6th of December, and he was killed on the 7th. They told me that then. They, oh, they, it was written so in the letter. And my mother and sister also were taken to... Uh, Sobibor, I think it was, wasn't it? Yeah, Sobibor. And they were killed straight away to the next day. In a way, very good, therefore. Better than suffering a lot. Yes, I suppose. You know, you, and, you've, and since then you've lived this a very long life, and I hope a happy one as well. I was very unhappy in the beginning in England because I didn't have a family anymore. And, that, and I, I had been working so hard during the war all the time, being very occupied, and suddenly I had nothing to do or almost nothing, and no family. I had my brothers there, but they had their own lives. One of them was already married and was sailing, and the other one was engaged and was always with her, so going to Birmingham. So I really was very lonely. I felt very alone too. I was working for the Dutch government for the um, medical services as a secretary, which was very nice. They made it for me, I think, because I was sitting in a room. I was secretary for the doctor of the medical services. I was sitting in a room with a major and a lieutenant. And all I had to do was learn what was in the files. And But I was bored. And then I met another girl, Dutch girl, who was working for the BBC, for the Dutch section of the BBC, and she was going to leave. And in those days, she couldn't leave unless she found somebody to take her job. And um, she said to me, why don't you take my job? And that's what I did. And that's how I got to the BBC, Dutch section, in 1945. And... Um, then in my husband, that was the Dutch section, my husband was, well, 
Hugo is working in the Belgian section, and the, the Belgian Flemish speak Dutch as well, and we do too, so we all had tea and meals together and so. Um, the two offices were only a very narrow corridors in between, so we knew each other already for a long time. And um, one day, I was um, having a meal in the canteen when Hugo came. I knew him already, of course, from the Belgian journalists, and said to me, are you free this afternoon? Um, because I've got two tickets for a film. And um, so I said, yes. And th th it was quite normal in those days. I mean, the, the cultural journalists got two tickets, well, the sports journalists got two tickets as well. Not now anymore, but in those days they did. And they asked us to come along. And so I said, yes. And then an English journalist came and said, um, I've got two tickets, would you like to come along? So I said, why don't you join us? And the three of us went to the film. And the film was called Marry Me. And uh, Hugo afterwards said, would you like to come and have a meal? So I said, that's lovely. So we went, and there weren't many restaurants open, but there was a lovely um, Chinese one, just off Piccadilly. And so we went there. And um, so we had a glass of wine. Hugo always had wine. <laughs> and um, so we toasted, we said, how oh, lovely. Nice that you could make it. And I said, yeah, well, especially it's very nice for me because it's my birthday. And it was my birthday. It was the 7th oh, of June. We started telling each other a bit of how we got to England and so. And from that moment on, he never left me alone. So we went, we became <laughs> a couple. And um, it was lovely because the canteen was all right, but it wasn't like... There was a Bush House. We were in Bush House, and Bush House had a marvelous yes. restaurant. And uh, we had tea there every day. Imagine me having tea there. I mean, you know, I was very fond of sweetness and cake. And uh, it was lovely. Oh, well, he uh, he took me home to Earl's Court, where I had a room. And even he turned out to have a room as well in Earl's Court in a uh, pub hotel. And uh, from that moment on, he just collected me every day and took me home again every day. Then I moved to, from my room, or from, by that time I was living with my brother and sister-in-law, and I moved from them to a hostel in Marble Arch, where I had a friend, Rini. It was a room with eight girls, and um, we were very nice together. We had a lovely time, and I did too. I learned English by that because in, in the Dutch section, of course, I spoke a lot of Dutch and my English wasn't very good, except what I'd learned at school. And uh, Hugo used to come and collect me and came and he was loved by the girls because he used to come. We, used, they, we had a very big room. You weren't allowed to have men in your own room and they had to leave at 10 o'clock anyhow, the building. And um, Hugo used to bring drinks and cakes and biscuits and so. And uh, they all, and we used to go swimming together, all the girls and, and he. <laughs> and um, it was just a lovely time, yeah. Meanwhile, I had started to study at the London School of Economics and Sociology and Anthropology. 
and was was out for a long time in the evening because I took the bus back because I was still working at the at the that section of the BBC until 1954, and I did my final exam for my degree only in 56. So you can imagine how long I studied and worked at the same time. And had Hugo. <laughs> we then, Rini and I, were thinking of sharing a flat, getting out of the hostel and sharing a flat, taking a room or sharing a flat. And then she had a friend living here in St. Peter's Square. And um, she knew that the other part of the house was empty and for renting. So we had to look at it, but Rini said it's too far with the tube for her to, because Rini had just finished a psychology degree and had a job uh, somewhere in the south of London. And she said it's very difficult to do that. So Hugo said, why don't we take it? And that's what we did. And I still live around the corner. <laughs> we got married in 1955. And then in 1957, our son Jocelyn was born. And uh, Hugo was a journalist. I started teaching. I took a postgraduate teaching degree. And because I wanted to do some, some work in the south of Asia on my, for my anthropology, but my professor said I wouldn't do that because they're fighting in Indonesia for the moment and it's going to be very dangerous for you with a Dutch passport. So I didn't. And he said, why don't you do some teaching? So that's what I did. I taught at an, um, I took an, a mathematics degree, postgraduate, taught at first at a big comprehensive school and then at the Sacred Heart. Um, Sacred Heart Catholic School, girls' school nearby here, and loved it. And then Hugo died in 79. And he, by that time, he was working as a journalist for the Televisier and the Afro, as well as for Belgian papers and culture papers on art. And um, when he died, the papers and the televisier asked me to take over. So I had to give up my teaching, which was very difficult because I loved it. I loved the girls and so But that's what I did. And I took over the journalist job and did that for years. How incredible. What an extraordinary life, Selma. It's amazing. I'm, I'm afraid we must we must wrap it there. But has it, has it been a burden living living with that all your life? Ah. Yes, well, in a way it is, of course, it's every day I know about it. Every day I suffer still. Every morning, though, I wake up and I'm glad to be alive. But, I mean, you know, every little thing reminds me of what happened, especially my parents' death and my sister. That that comes into in front of my eyes all the time. I I find it very difficult not to imagine not to see how they suffered. Although, of course, I don't know for sure um, what happened to them, but I can imagine it after all the things they have shown. And that's very bad. It's a, it's a daily occurrence, actually. When, I, when in the evening, if I can't sleep, then I see them in front of me, you know, or I see them being thrown into, the, into a van 
or into the carriage. We're, we're talking on Holocaust Memorial Day and um, some of that's just been the most incredible two hours <laughs> listening to you and talking to you. And um, thank you so much for, for sharing it all. I mean, what, what an incredible life you've had. What an incredible story. Well, I just want to say that it is very important to have the commemorations, actually, because it commemorates what has happened. And, it, and we hope, therefore, that like I give every year, I go to Amsterdam to talk to lay the wreath. I'm asking to, to, to lay the wreath on the dam after the king and queen and to go to Ravensbrück with Dutch teachers to tell them the story, have a workshop so that they can tell the children. And I go in August to Ravensbrück where to talk to the German students and do the same workshop with them. And it's I think it's very, very necessary. Well, it's been amazing to hear this. It really has. It's been, it's been um, profoundly moving, I have to say. So um, I, I'm enormously grateful to you for sharing it. And well, I'm pleased and to share it. It's necessary. Yeah. Also, to remind people that there were very many people who lost their lives trying to save other people. 